Thank you so much for that. What trophies of grace, amen? And I was thinking as he's talking, we have, uh, nor do we need to know the history in there, the details of every life and young lady represented there, but thank you. You guys have done a great job, and that's a great job. Well, the young people dismissed at this time. Uh, let them go back to their classes. Appreciate those. Oh, so they come back then. I was ready to move the mics, and you've already been on top of it. That's good. Judges. We're in Judges chapter 6 today. Judges chapter 6. Wow, what a exodus of kids. That's good. That's good. I always prayed that whenever, whatever church the Lord would have me serving, we'd have lots of kids running around. And uh, it does provide some cleanup and some different things once in a while, but uh, if you're going to be a growing church and doing something for the Lord, I believe that kids are a vital part of that. Part of the next generation. Judges chapter 6. We're back in Judges, and uh, as we have been looking at several different of the judges and different folks God used in the book, and uh, you know, I had this is one of those times that I have a, I guess you could call this a series totally unplanned. I did not plan to do a series out of Judges. Often my series are planned up to a year in advance, and I work on those, and it's just I started looking at this book and, and studying it, and the Lord's given me so much from it. And so I've just had to kind of bubble over and share that with you. Uh, a little boy was talking to his pastor, as only little boys can, so innocently. And uh, he said, today my dad taught me all about Babylon. And the pastor said, really? And what did he explain to you about Babylon? He says, well, he said, that's what our preacher does every Sunday, Babylon. And uh, today, it might seem like that this morning, uh, because we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started right away here. Gideon is who we're looking at today, Judges chapter 6 and, and chapter 7. He's the classic story of the underdog. Uh, he's, I'm getting a ring back here. Please uh, help get that uh, cleared there. just drives me crazy when it comes back up. Uh, Gideon is a nobody, yet he was called to lead the nation of Israel against its mighty foe, the Midianites. Gideon is a great inspiration uh, that of anyone who wants to do great things for God with great disadvantages in their life. His life teaches us that the overwhelming difficulties that we have to overcome can be overcome if we just put our faith and trust in an almighty God. Now Gideon's great work of delivering the Midianites, sometimes we forget about this because we see the, if you read the story, seem like so much going on, really is like a meteorite going across the sky because it really represents only a little over a week of, of time. And yet, what a week it was. And we're going to look at it uh, this morning as we go through this story, starting at verse number 1 of Judges chapter 6. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So they were hiding from Midian. They had to hide from them just to be safe. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come into Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came up as grasshoppers for multitude for both they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet. 
the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel. Interesting. Let's uh, stop there. We're going to read more as we get go through this. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but I do want to uh, just stop for that, and let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin into this story. Thank you, Father, for this time. I pray that you would help us to learn something that we can apply to our lives from this passage and this great man. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning on the mighty nobody. The mighty nobody. Uh, we see, as we kind of get the lay of the land and understand the situation that Gideon and his people are in, they're in another judge's slide that we could talk about that uh, we've seen over and over. They go to this, this roller coaster living where everything's going good and then they go into idolatry and God judges them and then they cry for deliverance. And We see this all throughout the book of Judges. Now, it, have you ever heard anybody say that uh, there's a certain period of their life, if I could just wipe out my 20s from my would do it. Well, this is a, the hit part of Israel's history. We would wipe away if we could because it's such a dark time and, and they made so, so many dumb mis mistakes and decisions. And the last verse of Judges sums up the problem when it says, in these days there was no king of Israel and every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Woe unto people when they do right in their own eyes. Because we have incredibly bad eyesight when it comes to doing right in our own eyes. So we find Gideon, the uh, 13 judges are recorded in the book uh, of Judges, and uh, 12 men, one woman, and Gideon was the sixth judge. He's one of the best known. One of the, more was written about him than any other except perhaps Samson. And so uh, we want to uh, look at what we can learn from him today. The Bible says that the primary cause for Israel being in this bad Pickle. And what was going on is Midianites would come and take their crops. The Israelites would raise their crops and get their, uh, uh, get their, bring it all gathered in the harvest, and then the Midianites would come and take it from them. And so it was a very bad hardship upon Israel. And they were in this place because of their iniquity. The Bible said that in verse 1, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Uh, now it's interesting that Israel tried to do what we all do when we are in bad trouble. We put the primary cause aside and focus on the secondary cause or the problem. That's, that's really the problem. And this is what Israelites did. They called unto God and they cried out unto him because of the Midianites. Uh, we always prefer to blame the Midianites as the main cause of our problems, uh, whatever Midian is in our life, when the real problem was that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But they did not come to God here and ask for forgiveness like they did in last week's message with Jephthah. Remember when they did that, they came to him, they threw away the false gods, they went to God and, and they, they re truly repented. Here, they just want deliverance. And so they're being chastened by God and uh, the Bible in verse 1 puts it right back on them. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's first before the Midianites. So it, that Midian was part of God's chastening. And when we're chastened by God, it is not the chastening that is the primary problem, but what brought the chastening that we ought to put our focus on. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now the Midianites were not interested in political control, but rather economic exploitation. They were plundering the land of its crops. They were starving the Israelites out. Uh, but we have already seen that the Midianites problem is not the primary problem, it's not the, the uh, cause of the problem, and yet there they came in great distress, distress crying unto the Lord. So, here's what's funny to me. 
That's where we ended our reading. When God got their cry, and here's the wonderful thing about the Lord, He answers our cries. Amen? And so, they're crying out to God, and so when He heard their cries, uh, and basically what they're crying is, we need deliverance! Send us General Patton! That's what they wanted. And uh, what did God do? He sent him a preacher. I think that's hilarious. He sends him a preacher. They want deliverance! They want to get free out of this bondage that they're in. And they and he sent them a preacher. That. That is just so funny to me because they did not look, even I, as a preacher, as wonderful as we are, even I know that there's times we're not the best option, okay? This was not the best, this is not exactly the time they need to preach, but here's the thing with the Lord. He always answers our prayers going to the source of the problem. And he was sending a preacher because that was their problem. Their problem was not the Midianites primarily. The problem was that they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The Midianites were a result of that. We're desperate always in our lives to fix the symptoms when God wants to take care of the heart. So Jeremiah 17.10 talks about that. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways. So to answer their prayer, God gave them not their request, but he gave them their need. Have you ever prayed for something and God answered like that? You think, I didn't ask for this. And yet, it might be exactly what you need rather than what you want. The God's first response to the people's cry then was not to send a Savior, but to send a sermon. And of course, they weren't very thankful for that. But before they appreciated the rescue, they had to understand why they were in the situation in the first place, or the rescue really wouldn't matter. You see, they in, in this passage, I believe they regretted their situation, but they did not repent of their sin. Now before, in previous uh, accounts we've read, they did repent, but... Here, they're just talking about their situation. And worldly sorrow does not necessarily produce change. Lots of people regret the condition they're in. But worldly sorrow does not bring uh, actual change into your life. Godly repentance does that. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. Regret over sorrow. Regret over the consequences of your sin but not over the sin itself, is a bad way to respond to that sin in our life and to our bad consequences in our life. Uh, the focus usually for us is always horizontal. Everything that's going on, all the, my relationships, my problems, rather than vertical, how is my sin affecting my relationship with God? So did they repent here? Uh, it's no sign they ever did really repent at this point. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say, but here's the amazing picture of God's grace, though. He chose to deliver anyway. I think this is wonderful. I'm glad that I don't serve a God who, uh, he does not wait until I repent to take care of my sin. I, that's a wonderful thing. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, he, he doesn't wait for us to get our act together before he shows us his mercy. What a blessing. We read in verses 11 and 12 here. Let's, let's read those verses. Uh, and there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak tree which was in Ophrah and pertained unto Joash the Abazrite and his son Gideon, threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from Midian. Now wait a second. Gideon is threshing wheat at a winepress so that he could hide from the enemy. This is the kind of living, life they were living. And look what it says in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. I read that and I thought, is the angel mocking him? Here he's hiding in a wine press 
threshing his wheat and afraid of the enemy, not wanting the enemy to find him, so he's hiding in this corner and threshing the wheat. And the angel, thou mighty man of valor. Uh, not really. I mean, the guy is hiding uh, from the enemy, and that's not what we would think as a superhero in our way of thinking. But uh, I think that's interesting. Verse 14, though, God told Gideon, go in this thy might. What is the this in thy might? I love this. Don't miss it. It comes from verse 12 where he says, the Lord is with thee. See, the might was not Gideon's own. He could call him a mighty man of valor, not because of who this nobody Gideon was, but because God was with Gideon and putting his call upon him. And hey, I got good news too, by the way, friend. Our might comes from the same place Gideon's might came from. It comes from the Lord. And uh, he makes that available to us. I'm thankful we don't have to serve God in our own strength. I'm thankful that we can say with Paul uh, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Through the power of God, the weakest of the weak, the nobody, can become somebody for the Lord. Even, uh, where, where did you say you were from? Possum Creek? Possum Holler? Yes, even somebody from there. Amen. God can use. That, I had to think, that fits well into my message today when we talked about that. Praise the Lord. He can use anyone. Now, Gideon did, though, what we often do, and he did what Moses did. He protested, made excuses. He started to give reasons why he can't do it. His focus, like many of ours, was not on who God was, but on who he was not. It was not on what God could do, it was on what he could not do. And we often do that when God puts his calling on us. When we look at things that way, we'll always come to the same conclusion that Gideon did. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You're right. It all depends on what you put trust in. If you, go across, if you respond to God's call or you really go into anything in life with the attitude, I can't do this, I can't do this, you probably can't. And you are right, you can't. But with God, you can do anything. Gideon now makes some excuses. And this is a terrible practice for any of us. Can I tell you, friends, making excuses burns zero calories per hour. Zero. And yet we do it so well. Benjamin Franklin said, he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. We ought to not be making excuses. But here's two he made. First, look at verse number 15. And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewithal shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So he makes two excuses. First, he says he lacked fortune. My family is poor. But Israel's problem was not something that money could solve in the first place. Uh, in fact, uh, money does not solve as many problems as we think it will. Matter of fact, money uh, is, if, if your problems are, can, can be solved by money, you don't have very big problems. Let's just be honest about it. Money is not the answer to the problems that we have. And uh, Gideon needed much more than that. He needed God. And so God had promised to be with him. Money was not a valid protest. Secondly, he said he lacked fame. Look at what he says. I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the low man on the totem pole, he said. He was not the MVP. He was not a VIP. He had no status. He had no rank. He had no position. He was a nobody. Joseph Parker said, we need not be socially great to be spiritually useful. Hallelujah. We don't have to be somebody to be somebody to him. And I'm glad for that. Even in our churches, sometimes we, we fall into this trap with our Christian celebrities that we have and the big names that we bring in. And, and uh, we have to be careful with that. We need men of faith, not men of fame. Men. Now Gideon, in obedience to the Lord, 
lucky, uh, it's good to see this in his life. He jumps in with both feet, ready to go. Uh, he builds an altar to the Lord, and when he did that, he tore down the altar of Baal. He did it at night because uh, with his, him and his few friends that were able to help him there, uh, he didn't want to be stopped in doing it, so he tore down the false altar to Baal and built an altar to God. The principle here, friend, is before that they can defeat the enemies around them, they had to defeat the enemy among them, and that was the idolatry in their heart. That is always how we'll see spiritual growth in our Christian life. Uh, before we, uh, it, it, often God looks for development in our life, and we're looking for deliverance. We've been there, haven't we? I mean, praying to God, maybe there's a bad uh, sickness or family problem or relationship issue. We pray and ask God to deliver us when He's looking to develop you. And so we have to remember that, that the, before, before we see God's deliverance, sometimes we'll see his development. And the idols that they've replaced God with, they had, to be, they had to go. They had to be removed before God could get them what they wanted. Now, the next little section of the story, we're going to look at several parts of Gideon. really could split this up, but I wanted to get it all done in one day. Gideon makes a request for God to give him a sign uh, with the fleece. How many of you are familiar with the fleece story? This is so common, uh, I mean, it's so well known even today that we still have it in our regular colloquially. We still use these words, all right? Uh, putting out the fleece, that's what we call it. So Gideon prays to God, and he says, now I'm going to put out this fleece, and at the, when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be soaking wet, and I want the ground to be dry all around. He goes to bed that night. If, if you're really calling me to do this, if you really want me to do this, I want you to do, do what I asked with the fleece. So he goes to bed that night. He gets up the next morning, and the next morning, guess what? The fleece is soaking wet. The ground is dry all around. Whew! Guess that told him. No, because he said to God, I want to do the reverse tonight now. Now, tonight I want the fleece to be dry, but I want the ground to be all wet. There's times in the Bible where God holds his head. This is one of them. And so he, do, he goes, and he, he that happens again. Now, the question that we have is, was this a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, was it good for Gideon to do this? I mean, wouldn't you like a fleece for all your big decisions that you had to make? Should I do it? Should I not? I don't know. I'll pull out my fleece. Throw it down the ground. I'll find out for sure. You know, should I uh, make should I make bacon and eggs for breakfast or should I have bran muffins? All right. That's not even a question, first of all. But we understand the, the, uh, the big decisions we make. We'd like to have a fleece for that. So was it a good thing what he did? If, <laughs> Brother Coker, I found this funny. If you really want to confuse yourself and you say, well, I'll settle it. I'll go to the commentaries. Whenever there's a question that you have, uh, you really want to confuse yourself. This is the way to do it. Donald Wiseman said the story of getting in his fleece, we desire to see expunged from the sacred heart. Another Haldeman said it proved that Gideon's heart was still full of unbelief. Others praise Gideon in the pulpit commentary. He says, in his humility, Gideon craves a sign that he is indeed chosen. Edersheim said it was not from his unbelief nor his weakness of faith that Gideon asked the sign from the Lord. Sometimes I read these different men and read these different uh, commentaries and try to find uh, you know, a place uh, to get ideas and find out where they men land. I think of that story. There were two men in a small village that had a terrible argument on their hands. They were going back and forth. They had a, they had a, uh, a dispute they could not settle, so they decided to go talk to the preacher. 
And the first guy comes to the preacher's home and he lays out his whole case before the preacher. This is what my side is. And the preacher at the end said, you know what? You're exactly right. And so the guy left. The second one comes up and he lays out his side. Opposite of everything the first guy said. That first guy was a liar and this is the truth. And he lays out his case. And the guy and the preacher finally thinks there as he's listening. He says, you know what? You're absolutely right. And so his, this guy left and his wife came out and said, you can't do that. You can't hear two opposite sides and sit there and say that they're both right. That's completely indecisive. That's what he said. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's sometimes what you get when you're looking for some answers. But uh, I'd like to look at it, some detail here and look at three elements of this policing. I'm not going to tell you today whether it was wrong or not. I don't think it was necessary, and that's the first point I want to make. This was an unnecessary request. Gideon did not need more signs to prove that he was to lead the Israelites in battle against Midian. He had an angel of the Lord tell him that. He had the word of God to tell him. He did not need a fleet. Instead of asking God for signs, why don't we just get busy doing what we know we ought to do from the word of God? Lord, if you want me to go to church tomorrow, I need you to wake me up at exactly 7.26 a.m., then I'll know. No, no, he's already told you that's where you need to be. So just get busy doing what God says to do. Okay? Too many people seek for signs uh, when they just need to be obedient. And, but the second thing I'd like to point out is he did ask reverently. He did ask reverently. He did not ask for uh, more signs. When, well, he did after the first one. But uh, after the second one, he didn't ask for more signs. It showed a respect for God, especially in verse 39, when he says, Let not thine anger be hot against me. Gideon may have had some faults, but irreverence wasn't one of them. But then we might ask the question, what about what the Bible says in the New Testament? In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Well, first of all, those comments were made to ungodly people whose request for a sign was full of scorn and mocking. They were not looking to support their belief, but their unbelief. They were filled with it. Example, another example is in Matthew chapter 27 with 39. The same crowd was reviled him, the Bible says, and wagging their heads and saying, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Listen, would they have believed him if he had come down? Absolutely not. They were not looking to support their belief, but their unbelief. They had not believed any signs he gave before. They had ignored everything because, listen, can I tell you today, belief does not come from proof, it comes from faith. I've said this before, but it's so true, because I'm sure yeah, several preachers here today, I'm sure you've heard this as I have many times, if God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? Why doesn't he just show himself if he's real? I always follow that up with two questions. What if he does show himself? How do you know it's him? Well, he'll have to prove it. I mean, he'll have to prove he's God. How would he prove it? I don't know, would he maybe do miracles? What if he took it? blind man and gave him sight? Did that prove he was God? What if he did the lame man? What if he raised someone from the dead? Then you'd know he was God. Would that do it? About that time, usually it starts sinking in their minds what I'm talking about. He did come. He did prove who he was. We crucified him. Why? Because unbelief isn't attached to proof. Unbelief is a, is a problem of a lack of faith. Alright. So, it, it is it is a uh, truth that he was very reverent. Thirdly, he asked successfully. 
God gave Gideon the sign he requested. This, by the way, does not prove that Gideon was right to do so necessarily. God has that kind of grace. But uh, uh, let's not be too harsh on people who are growing in their faith. You remember Gideon, this is just hours after he's called. He's, he's, I mean, he's a nobody sitting there farming in his dad's house, hiding, and uh, now he's being told he's going to lead the Israelites against these Midianites. And let's give him a little room to grow, amen? And we see that as this story progresses. And so just the fact that, um, the fact that God did uh, answer him does not mean that uh, it puts a blanket approval on all of our sign requests, okay? God helping the weak does not justify our remaining weak. Baby talk is cute in baby. It's not cute in adults. You know what I'm saying? You know I mean? Have you ever heard adults talking baby talking? It's just not as cute as when they're little babies because we kind of expect them to grow. For instance, uh, you expect to change a diaper in a baby. And that's where I'll leave it, okay? It's not cute in adults because we ought to grow, amen? We ought to mature. And so here, uh, we, we have something Gideon did not have. We have the Word of God. We have far more light than he had. And so let's put our dependence on the Word of God, not on signs. And uh, that's, I think that that's a lesson we can take from the Word of God. <coughs> now, this, this is good, though. Once he got that second verification, he's full throttle ahead. He's going. He's not stopping. And he's going to get the job done. Here we talk about the army. After the fleece sign, uh, Gideon, the Bible says, he rose up and pitched uh, beside the will of Herod so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them. Uh, this is on chapter 7, verse 1, by the hill of Morah in the valley. When Gideon blew his trumpet, 32,000 men showed up to fight. Now we're just hours from the time of the battle with Midian's about to begin. The men would be readying themselves. They would be spending one last day with their family because they know that there is a high probability they'll never come back and see their family again. After all, they are uh, outnumbered four to one. 135,000 soldiers on the other side, and they only have 32,000 on their side. And then that's when God came to Gideon, and he says to Gideon, Gideon, I'm not happy with the amount of people you have. And Gideon says, thank you. That's what all I've been thinking about here. We don't have near enough people. There's no way we're going to get smoked if we go, uh, go, go up against me. God says, you've got too many. Just stop and think where Gideon's mind is. I got what? I got too many. He says, you have too many. Look at what he says in verse 2, chapter 7. The people that are with thee are, listen to this wording, are too many to give the Midianites into their hands. Wait, I thought if you were going to a fight, having more people is better. That's what I thought. But he says, you've got too many to win. That's what he said here. There's too many for me to give you the victory. Too many to win. Just let that sink in for a second. Sorry, folks. You guys lost the game because you just had too many. You've had too many to win. This is how ridiculous this is. He, had a, he was already facing a vastly outnumbered army. He needed a bigger army, not less. And God says you need a smaller group of people. I can't give you the victory because you have too many. I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. How would Gideon, look, I'm not, a, I'm not an experienced general, but that seems kind of backwards to me. A lot of times God's ways seem kind of backwards to us, don't they? 
Well, let's read on. So, uh, by the way, we could stop for just a moment. What do you do when God asks you to do something? Because he does sometimes. Have you ever been there? What do you What do you do when God tells you to do something that does not make human sense? Like forgive that person that hurt you so deeply. Like love that one that despises you. Like tithe even though you can't really seem to get your bills all paid. Still be faithful to me in this area. What do you do when God's instructions just don't make sense? Well, it's uh, great what Gideon did. Uh, he kept right on going. By the way, the fleece, all these things are helping Gideon's faith to grow. He's growing. That's what this is all about. Growth. And now he goes right. He doesn't argue with God. He's not throwing a fleece out. He takes God at his word. Would we, uh, would to God we be so quick to obey? So God tells Gideon his army needs to be trimmed down. He also tells him why. Verse number two, this is why there's too many. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, my own hand hath saved me. Here's another interesting thing. God saw a different enemy to the Israelites than the Israelites. Gideon only sees the Midianites. That's his enemy. That's who we got to overtake. That's who we got to overcome. God's looking at the Israelites and their enemy that he's more concerned about is pride. He's God's more concerned. He always is more concerned about the heart than he is about the circumstances. See, we've got our eyes on the circumstance. We think these circumstances are so humongous, there's no way I can overcome them. And God looks at our circumstances and they're nothing to him. He's more concerned about the pride that might enter your heart. And so he said there's too many because if you go and then you'll think you did it in your own power. Listen, if we could understand that God is not in heaven drinking Maalocs about your circumstances. He is not stressed out. He is not worried. He is not uh, uh, flummoxed about what to do about your circumstances. He is worried about your heart, though. About your pride. About these things that affect you. It's not so much our littleness that hinders God as it is our bigness. It's not so much our weakness that hinders Him as it, is, as it is our strength. It's not so much our darkness but our supposed light that holds back His power. So God says, you have too many. Too many! By the way, too many for what? Because human nature is so that if there is the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we'll do it. That's how, what our nature is. We set up ourselves as our alternate saviors. And God wants to make clear, when I save you, I want you to know that you are not your own savior. You can't, that's true in salvation too. You can't save yourself. You can't do enough to get you. I'm your savior. And I'm the only one there. So he didn't want them to take the credit. So what he tells Gideon is 99.0625% of your soldiers got it. And he's only got 32,000. God takes him from odds 4 to 1 to 13 to 1, all the way down to 450 to 1. Now two tests were given to thin the ranks out. Uh, the test of dread was the first one. Look at verse number 3. Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. This would be this test would determine who's filled with fear. And boy, was this test effective. Because there returned 20 and 2,000 people. Now they're down to 10,000. God was strengthening the army, by the way, <coughs> by keeping them from being paralyzed with fear. With 20,000 fearful men, can you imagine how quickly they would have paralyzed Gideon's army had they stayed back. Because fear is contagious. It is something that is caught by everybody. And so God said, the first thing we've got to do is get the people out that are fearful 
and uh, are going to be uh, hurt the whole army. So the same thing is true, by the way, in churches today. Uh, too many Christians today are, are they're fine to follow Christ and they're fine to uh, be a Christian and do the things that they should as long as it is comfortable and easy. But the moment danger stares them in the face, uh, they slink away in fear because difficulty creates defectors just like it did here, just like it does anywhere. And so, 22,000 left the army. I can imagine Gideon looking at that crowd, grieving, looking what he's got left. He's only got a third. Ish. All right, 22,000 have left. And he's only got this few left. So, Gideon's probably, I got a picture just again in my mind. Gideon's like, respectfully, because we see Gideon was respectful the whole time. God, look what you did. You wanted a fearful gone. Now look at what's happened. And God said, Yes, Gideon, you're right. You still have too many. I can't imagine Gideon. Poor Gideon! I mean, I'm just, I try to get into his mind of how he was thinking here. Are you kidding me? It was four to one, it's now thirteen to one. He still said too many. So, got look at what it says in verse five here. He brought the people down into the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, and as a dog lappeth, thou shalt set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. A number of them that lap put their mouth, hand to their mouth were three hundred men. So here's the picture. He says, uh, I want you to, there, there's two ways of drinking. These guys are going to come to the riverside and they're either going to they're going to dip down their hand, lift it up and drink out of their hand like a cup. This is one way. Or some of them will be so thirsty and they'll just throw their heads right down into the water and suck the water up until they are not so thirsty anymore. Those are the two types of drinking. And so God had previously taken the ones out that were fearful and now he is trimming those who lack attentiveness he is trimming those who gave themselves too freely to fulfilling the appetites of the flesh. That's what he's picking here. So God was literally purifying the army with this drinking test. Because he had said in verse 4, after all, I will try them. The word try there means to smelt, to refine. I'm going to take your army of 32,000 and I'm going to refine them. Make them exactly what they need to be. Even if it's only 300 people. 300. So now you can imagine uh, Gideon's mindset. Uh, there are only 300 left. By the way, this is a great lesson in here. They were so, uh, this was the ones that stayed, the ones that kept on their guard. It's so important to keep on our guard when we're in battle. And friends, we're in battle. First Corinthians, uh, First Peter 5, 8, uh, be sober, be vigilant, burying your wa- head in water is not sober. All right, be vigilant, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's a lesson in there for us. The world and the devil don't want you to succeed. They want you to fail. So now there's 300 left. God was finally satisfied. I can see Gideon shaking his head. But God said, look at what he said in verse 7. I love this. By the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thy hand. Can I tell you, friend, he didn't get that promise till he was obedient. He didn't get that promise until he already obeyed God what he told him to do. Sometimes obedience secures the promise. Obedience sooner or later makes the promises of God real to us. But obedience is often very difficult. It will test our faith to the limit sometimes. Obedience often seems more like it's leading us to defeat than to victory. In a place like that, the devil will always come and whisper in your ear and tempt you to quit on God, tempt you to throw in the towel, tempt you to give up your faith. 
But if we're going to be great for God, we're going to keep on going despite the fact we must obey by faith, not by sight. We have to hurry. Gideon, there's another little picture here I love. Gideon and his buddy Phura, they sneak into the camp of the Midianites by the dark of night. And I'm not going to read the whole story. It's in verse 13 and 14 if you want to scan it very quickly. But they were they came into the middle of the camp. They snuck, sneaked, they, got, they went uh, stealthily into the tent. And he was sitting beside one of the tent flaps. And he was listening. And it just so happened by coincidence that the guy inside is talking about him. Coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. Because this is exactly what Gideon needed. And look at what the man said. This is so interesting here. Uh, where are we at here? Chapter, uh, uh, verses 13 and 14. Uh, there was a man, verse 13, that told a dream into his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled in the host of the Midian and came into a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. So this guy is having this dream and then he confirms in the next, it's Gideon that it's talking about. That barley bread uh, is, is uh, picturing Gideon. So, uh, this is so funny because Gideon's hearing this and he probably elbows Fira as they go, they're scared of us. Isn't that a great thing? Imagine how this encouraged Gideon. He found, because all Gideon had seen was fear. He saw 22,000 of his people walk off in fear and all, the, and all they had left was 300 and now they find out that, hey, our enemy is afraid of us. That gave him great courage great encouragement. I love that. reminds of us what God said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness because it gave that picture of that barley bread coming down the hill, a loaf of bread bouncing across a tent and the tent goes down because a loaf of bread bounced over. Weakness overcoming the strong is what that is about. And that was a picture of exactly what would happen, really. Alright, let's get to the battle. Gideon equipped his soldiers for battle with very strange equipment. He gave them a lamp, a pitcher, and uh, not to be, you don't want him to be completely defenseless, so he also gave him a trumpet. Can you picture those soldiers? What are we going to do with this stuff? I mean, are we going to a party or are we going to war? They had a pitcher, a lamp, and a trumpet. Uh, verse number 16, he put a trumpet in every man's hand and empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. The trumpet is better known to us today as the shofar, that ram's horn that goes up that they uh, would, would call to battle and the priests would use them. Uh, the pitcher is a jug used for carrying water. The original word's cad, it means large jar. The lamps were torches is what the original word means, torches. It was a uh, basically like a fire on the end of a stick or something along those lines. So Unseen by the Midianites, these Israelite soldiers in the dead of night started to surround them on top of the hills there. And uh, to the natural man, by the way, this equipment would be ridiculous. It's ridiculous. A pitcher, a trumpet, going to battle. But I love what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, that God had chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He had chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. Why does God choose weapons that are weak? He tells us a verse later that no flesh should glory in His presence. So this is going to be real clear. If we defeat 132,000 people and their weapons with a pitcher and a trumpet, I think that's God. 
Would you agree? Yeah, that's probably God. That's not me. That's what God wants. That's what he wants with all of us. So the attack here, uh, by the way, they did it at dead of night because can you imagine if it was during the daytime and the army was looking up on the hills and saw guys with a bunch of trumpets, they'd have laughed themselves silly at them. But this is not what happened. They did this in the middle of the night. The attack shows that Gideon was a very good steward of his circumstances even though they were very limited. We are expected to do the same thing. Gideon did not worry about what he did not have. He used what he did have and served God with it. Now, here's where it gets odd. I assume Gideon was instructed by God uh, how to do this because no man would kick this way to go to battle. So here's what happens. First, they sounded the trumpets. Had 300 trumpets, they have them in position, and he said when the signal happens, we all blow and we keep on blowing. We don't stop blowing the trumpet. And so the sudden blaring, I imagine, here you got a whole sleeping army and all of a sudden, there's 300 trumpets that are blowing around them. It'd be a little eerie, wouldn't it, at night? Especially if you think they probably have one trumpet for every thousand people or something like that. Mine can do a lot of different things. And so here, these trumpets were going. By the way, nothing else is going to take greater courage than this. Now they're committed. When you blow that trumpet, there's 132,000 people there waiting to kill you. You're committing yourself. And so they blow this trumpet. And uh, then they uh, they smashed the pitchers. So the pitchers which were covering the lights, they smashed the pitchers, and the ones that were hidden were now seen. This also took a lot of dedication because now they would be, see where they are. Once they were broken, there would be no turning back now because the entire army would see exactly where they are. The breaking of these pitchers would be a little upsetting. You know how, you know what it makes you feel like when you hear a plate break. Ooh, you hear that. Well, that's what they would hear times 300. And so, and the trumpet's still blowing. And then the shining of the torches. All of a sudden, Midianites would be surrounded by some 300 lights. And the dark of the night, uh, the panic would set in. And the alarm, and it would help them win the victory. Gideon then instructed the 300 to uh, shout out the charge. Uh, the sword of the Lord in Gideon, when the signal was given. Battle cries can be important. Hey, we know that. Uh, how about, remember the Alamo? That basically won a battle, uh, won a war after they went down. So, it's interesting here, the 300 did not actually charge the camp. Look at verse 21. They stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the hosts ran and cried and fled. The Midianites ran like scared rabbits, while the Israelites simply did their duty, blow the trumpet, smash the pitcher, hold up the torch, shout the battle cry. Had they charged down the hill, probably sooner, really quickly, the army would have realized, there's just a few guys here. This is uh, We can wipe these out quickly. But they didn't. They stayed where they were. They, they would have revealed their ridiculous small army and the fact that, well, yeah, uh, you know, start to hit guys with trumpets because that's all they had. They didn't have any battle weapons. They would have ended the battle quick. But standing firm, for a time anyway, kept the Midianites in terror and suspense. Can I tell you something sometimes... Friends, it's harder to stand than it is to do something. Sometimes it's harder to stand still than just let God work through our circumstances. This might have been a difficult thing for them, but that's what they did. Even if activity is not productive, we sometimes desire that activity. We like to add action onto waiting on God, but God orders our stops as well as our starts. Sometimes we need to be open to that. I don't know about you, though. I like forward march much better than company hall. 
That's just my personality. But here they stood, strong, and terror permeated the camp of the Midianites. The evidence of their great fear is seen when it says that all the host ran and cried and fled. It is fitting that the Midianites were run out by fear because that, they had kept the Israelites in fear for these seven years. They fled, the Bible says, from Bethshida to Zerarath to the border of Abel-Meloah to Tabith. And this is silly. Because no one's chasing them. Yeah, I mean, Israelites did later. But no one's chasing them. In fact, Gideon and his 300 are standing still. And this arm is running. They were literally bluffed into defeat. So God made a mockery of Midian and his great army when they ran like rabbits. And you can imagine how the Midianites would have become the laughing stock of that age. <clears throat> have you Here you have a large, mighty army fleeing from 300 men armed with trumpets and they're running like crazy down the road. Hey, God can give us victory. Amen? It doesn't matter how impossible life seems. It doesn't matter the, the size of what's in front of me. It doesn't matter how big the Midianite army is. God can give us victory if we just let Him work through us. If we obey when it doesn't make sense. Because sometimes it won't. Sometimes it won't make sense when God takes our, our at least we have 32,000. You know, it's uh, worse things have happened in history than, than uh, more, more surprising things have happened than 4 to 1 odds being beaten. But uh, now he took them down to 450 to 1. Didn't make sense, but they still did it. Obeying God makes no sense. What a story. The mighty nobody. I just simply want to ask you today, friend, what could God do with you you just said, here I am. That's what we've seen all throughout the book of Judges. We've seen the oddest ducks used by God in great ways. We've seen unsuspecting people just do the unsuspecting thing and get into the annals of history for the great things that they did. How about we just come to God? No reserves, no arguments, no excuses. I'll do whatever you say. You can work through me. And I promise you, my friend, God can give you victory. It does not matter what insurmountable odds you have in front of you. He can give you victory. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to give you an opportunity today to respond. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, please, friend, don't leave today without settling that in your heart. We, we always want to make sure that we give an opportunity for someone who's unsure of their home in heaven to make sure of that even today. If you're here today, dear Christian, and you maybe you've been like Gideon, God wants to use you for something, and you think it's just impossible. There's no way that that can happen. Or maybe God's telling you to do something that doesn't make sense, and you don't know why. Can I just tell you today, friend, uh, and can I encourage you just to give him the ring. Let him order your steps. Would you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed? She begins to play. I'm gonna have the